Hello, wonderful people, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 63, and it's part number four of our series called Setting the Bible Free. Uh, If you want to know what the heck that is all about, go back a few episodes to the first part of the series. Uh, The episode is called The Bible Has Been Hijacked, Let's Set It Free, And uh, we talk about a little bit about what the series is about, uh, the origins of the series, what to expect going forward, some topics we might bring up, the guests that are going to be on the show. So go check it out. Uh, You'll get all of the details there, um, as well as as some of my um, history or my experience um, with with the Bible. But like I said, this is episode 63, uh, part four of the series. And today we have uh, a repeat guest coming on the show. His name is Thomas Ord. Uh, He came up uh, on the show in January, I believe it was, of this year. And he talked to us about his latest book, which is called God Can't. And uh, today, on this episode, he's going to talk to us about some questions kind of revolving around that book, but oriented with um, the Bible. So I'm excited about this because he actually had a couple of topics and questions that he wanted to address um, on the show on this particular episode. And then what I did is we have a uh, closed Facebook group of about 100 people. And so I posted in there that Thomas was coming on the show to talk about the Bible. And I said, what questions do you guys have for him that you might want to ask? And so um, I've got a handful of questions from um, the people in our group, uh, and they are going to be uh, presented to Thomas in this episode, and he very graciously answers those questions. And uh, it's really ah, just such good stuff. I came away from this episode feeling like I, I feel like I learned something really, really good. So I think that uh, you are going to find the same. Uh, before we roll the tape, though, a couple of reminders. Uh, number one is Patreon. Patreon.com slash What If Project is a place where you can go uh, to support the show financially. So if this thing has challenged you, uh, encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, you can sign up for a monthly giving anywhere from $3 a month, which is like a, a cup of coffee, all the way up to $30 a month. And each tier, there's like four or five different tiers, uh, has its own reward. So anything from like a weekly blog post to a uh, bi-monthly bonus podcast Uh, to a book that you get in the mail, all sorts of things. Uh, So go check it out, patreon.com slash whatifproject. We have 19 patrons uh, right now. So the 19 of you, if you are listening right now, thank you so much uh, for your generosity. Thank you for believing in what we are doing and trying to build um, here at the What If Project uh, podcast. Uh, I am grateful for your support, for your encouragement. I know each of you by name, Uh, You all reach out to me on a regular basis to encourage me, and I thank you so, so much for that. So patreon.com slash whatifproject. And the second thing is, uh, I mentioned that Facebook group. It's awesome. Uh, It's called the What If Project Community, and uh, I said it last week, but I kind of started it on a whim, just really thinking, I don't know, you know, other people do this, so I guess I'll do it too. And we tried it, and some, you know, a few people joined, and we had some dialogue, but People started to invite other people. Uh, I guess people who listened to the the show went out and looked for it and clicked on it in the show notes. And it's it's a growing community. But everybody in this thing is in a different place in their walk with God. Uh, and that's what's so fascinating to me. So no matter where you are, whether you've been a Christian for, you know, a hundred years or you've you're kind of been a Christian for a while, but maybe you're teetering on the edge of like atheism because you're not really sure what you believe, uh, maybe you're, you know, Buddhism feels like it's up your alley. Maybe you're just, you know, I'm tired of labels. I don't know what I believe. Wh- wherever it is that you are, uh, you are welcome to come into this place and have a voice and share your voice and share your experience, ask your questions, express your doubts, share resources that have helped you. Everybody in there is cheering one another on. And it's one of the most beautiful experiences that I've had um, in terms of a community. So go check it out. Uh, what if Project Community, I will put the link to that in the show notes as well. But all of that to say, like I said, uh, this is episode number 63. It's part three, or part four, sorry, of our series, uh, Setting the Bible Free. 
and uh, we're going to be sitting down with the one and only Thomas Board. Enjoy. Wishing for my people. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. It is great to have you along today. Uh, I'm super excited because today we have our very first uh, repeat guest on the show. And you might remember him from back in January. His name is Thomas Ord. Uh, Thomas is a scholar, uh, public theologian, and uh, the author of his most recent book, uh, God Can't. So Thomas, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for Dropping by, I guess I didn't scare you away the first time. <laughs> no, it's a super honor to be a repeat guest. Uh, thank you. Well, you are the first, so congratulations. Oh, that's super honorable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I figure we'll, we'll skip all of the uh, typical intro stuff for our listeners. If you want to know more about Thomas, I'd encourage you to uh, use the Google or the interwebs or uh, scroll back to our January episode. Uh, he talks a little bit about his journey, uh, what he does, but Today, I want to jump right into some good stuff and uh, get his thoughts about uh, some more Bible-related questions. Now, Thomas, we had uh, been emailing back and forth, and uh, you shared with me that you have a couple of uh, maybe questions or topics that you'd like to address that you think would be helpful for our listeners. And after reading them and thinking through them myself, um, I think that they will be very helpful. And so first and foremost, I want to create some space for you to kind of dance around those topics, I guess you can say. Uh, and then I have a, a handful of questions from, from our listeners. And I mentioned to you in our email exchange that we have this closed Facebook group of about 100 people. And uh, I posted in there last week to let them know that you'd be coming on the show. And uh, they have some questions about the Bible that they would love to ask you if they were able to join us today. So I figured I'll start off with those two topics, then we'll dive into their questions. Sound good? I like that plan. Perfect. So the first topic uh, has to do with the Bible describing God in an unloving way. And so uh, I will phrase the question to you like this. Does the Bible uh, ever describe God acting in a way that is unloving? Now, real quick, I was thinking about this question ever since you sent it to me. And I was thinking about my uh, evangelical upbringing. And that would tell me that absolutely not. Because anytime God appeared to act unlovingly, unlovingly in the Bible uh, is because that I have a limited understanding of him. His ways are higher than my ways and his ways will always be sovereign. And for a long time, and I would imagine this is probably true for our listeners as well, that was a good enough answer for me. And uh, that kind of got me along fine. But now I'm in this season of kind of rethinking things, you know, deconstructing, reconstructing. I feel like it's kind of a lame answer because if I look through my Bible, especially like in the Old Testament, I see God acting in some fairly I would say monstrous ways, whether it's the story of Noah's Ark, killing everybody on earth, uh, the story of God committing Joshua to go take over the Canaanites and massacre everybody, whatever it is. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this? Like the Bible says that God is love, but then we see the Bible describing God acting in these unloving ways. So help us understand what to do with all of those things. (laughs) Yeah, well, let me answer the question first and then go into my rationale. How does that Perfect. sound? I love it. The question is, does the Bible ever describe God as acting in an unloving way? And the answer is yes, numerous yes. times. Yeah. So um, now to step back a second. Um, more than anything else in my life, I want to live a life of love. Mm. Love is at the very center of how I understand the gospel. I think it's the dominant theme in the Bible. It's the way that makes sense, not only in uh, the way I live in my practical day-to-day life, but I think it makes sense theoretically in all kinds of disciplines and domains. So for me, love is the very center of my reality. At least that's what I aim aim Hmm, for. Sure, that's the goal. I also think that love is at the center of Scripture. I think the preponderance or the majority of Scripture points to a God whose love is steadfast, who loves the last and the least, who loves uh, everyone all the time, not only humans, but non-humans as well. I Mm. think the majority of Scripture points toward that witness. But as you point out, there are some passages that just don't seem to paint God as loving. Mm. And just like you, I've been around people, and maybe I might have done this myself when I was younger. I can't remember, but I, I could have. 
I've danced around and tried to justify these things, saying things like, well, you know, God's ways are higher than mine. Maybe what's loving from God's perspective is not loving from our perspective. Hmm. But, but if you go down that road, then you've got all kinds of problems because then you don't really know what the loving thing is to do. Hmm. There's got to be some connection, some analogy between what God thinks is loving and what we think is loving. Otherwise, hmm. you could just point to any old activity and say, well, God must think that's loving. So therefore, I don't know, cutting off everybody's left ear, raping all girls under seven, that must be loving. Um, so there's got to be some analogy. So what I like to say is that as I read scripture, I think the witness of scripture points to a God of steadfast love, especially the witness of Jesus. And I ought to use the majority witness to critique the minority report. Hmm. That means that um, I don't think the Bible is totally consistent which troubles some people. It troubled me when I was younger to have that thought going through my head. But uh, just because I don't think it's consistent, I don't think I have to throw it out. It still remains for me my primary source for uh, making sense of questions about God. Hmm. That's good. So what do we do then with stories? Let's just say, for instance, like a story of God commanding Joshua to commit genocide in Canaan. Like, did this, did this happen? Um, is this, um, is this something that's consistent with God? Is there something bigger going on in that story? Like, you know, an everyday reader of the Bible is picking up their Bible for maybe their morning devotion, so to speak. And they come across the story. Like what, what, do, what do they do with this? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can deal with this. Some biblical scholars will point out that there's no evidence of this event actually ever happening. But if you're a typical Christian reading your Bible, you're not really worried about thinking whether or not there's actual historical evidence of a massacre. Hmm. The Bible describes it. Um, it still sounds as if God wanted it. At least hmm. uh, the writers thought God wanted it. Hmm. What I do is I just simply say they were wrong. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> sorry to be blunt, but right. <laughs> uh, um, I don't say they were wrong because I think I'm a super enlightened 21st century postmodern intellectual who's hmm. smarter than everybody else. I say they're wrong based upon the majority uh, witness of scripture, which hmm. points to a God who doesn't call us to murder other people, doesn't hmm. call us to wipe out whole tribes and nations. So um, I critique those particular passages based on scripture, not some sort of postmodern idealist philosophy. Hmm. So do you think then that like the people who are writing down those stories, the people who were living in those times were perhaps uh, viewing, maybe viewing God through the culture of their time, like through the ways that people understood the way that the gods had acted? Because from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the people in the days of Joshua understood the gods to be uh, warlords in a sense who were empowering them to take over lands and defeat people and win wars. And so when they won those wars, they saw the gods on their side and when they lost, they thought that they weren't on their side. So do you think that the people who are writing these biblical texts and these stories were kind of viewing Yahweh through that lens yet at the same time also viewing Yahweh to be very different from the other gods? Yeah, I do think that. But I don't think we have to look back at the writers and say, you know, they just weren't very smart. Hmm. Um, you know, now we know better today because you don't have to hang around the church very long right. to run across people who think today that God wants us to go and, you know, murder people and go to war, etc. So this is an ongoing question within Christianity. It's a question within the text and it's a question hmm. still today. And again, I think the preponderance, the majority of Scripture, points to a, a vision of God's perfectly loving. Now, there is another option here. Another option would be to say, you know, God is loving seven or six days of the week, but, you know, one day God gets really pissed and calls us to do some evil things. It's kind of like, you know, the, the stepfather who gets drunk on Friday night and it's a real, you know, beast to you. Mm. Um, you'd have kind of a schizophrenic God in that case, a God who's loving most of the time, but occasionally is evil. Uh, to me, that doesn't sound like an attractive way to go. Now, you might want, want to go that way if you think the Bible has to be totally consistent, mm. but I'd rather have an inconsistent Bible than have an inconsistent God. Mm. And I love that you said too that, you know, Jesus is 
is the climax of understanding God. I think I think it's Brian Zond who says that Jesus is what God has to say. Yeah, 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 I think so. I mean, people have been saying this for centuries that Jesus gives us our fullest revelation of who God is. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you still have to do some work because, you know, um, Jesus doesn't represent God perfectly. I mean, most Christians like me think that God is omnipresent, for instance, but Jesus mm-hmm. was never omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Most people think uh, God knows everything. God is omniscient. We may argue about the details of that. But Jesus didn't know a lot of things, according to the text. So mm. we're going to have to still do some work in trying to figure out in what ways Jesus reveals God and in what ways uh, he doesn't. But I think Jesus gives the clearest revelation of God's nature being love. Mm. I like, too, that you say that this also requires work, because so often, you know, for me, I came away from my upbringing in church and even in school, to a sense, sometimes thinking that the Bible is just so black and white. And it says what it says. And these doctrines are very easy to understand if you just have enough faith. But like you said, when you go and you look at Jesus, uh, sometimes you see that uh, maybe, like you said, he doesn't represent God in the fullest extent, um, especially yeah. in those areas. So that's really helpful. Yeah, you know, and I think also at least my history has been one who's been in lots of dialogue with other people in the Christian tradition. And um, Christians have not interpreted the Bible in the same way, and not only across denominations, but even the little home church that I was raised in, you know, people mm-hmm. had different views of what the Bible said. So it became pretty obvious to me early on that the Bible wasn't clear and straightforward, at least in a way that everyone would agree on what it meant. Hmm. So second question is, does the Bible ever say that God controlled creatures or creation. I think that's an interesting uh, question. I know that's one, again, that you uh, wanted to explore a little bit, but your theology seems to be built around this idea that God is uncontrolling. And that's a word that I've picked up from you and also Mark Karras, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago uh, to talk about the uh, uncontrolling love of God. But in the Bible, you know, if I look through the Bible, I see places where, um, like for instance, God somehow controlled the rotation of the earth and, you know, made the sun stand still in that story, um, controlled the weather to cause um, droughts, uh, controlled the heart of Pharaoh in a sense. The Bible says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, caused the, the waters of the Red Sea to, to divide. So what, what do we do or what, what do you do with your theology about this uncontrolling love of God with those kinds of instances in the Bible, even in the New Testament where Jesus seems to be performing these miracles where he's clearly controlling things that people around him are unable to, to control. Yeah. Um, this, my answer to this question might surprise a lot of people. Okay. Everybody get ready. (laughs) (laughs) Does the Bible ever say that God controlled creatures of creation? And I can't find a single passage in the old Testament or new Testament that explicitly says God controlled creatures to do any of the miracles you mentioned or Hmm. hardening Pharaoh's heart or anything. Um, now, by control, let me try to be specific here. Yeah, let's by define control, that. I, I mean, act as what philosophers call a sufficient cause, which means being the only one who single-handedly brings about some event. Hmm. So um, I'm saying that the scriptures never, ever say God was the only actor to bring about some occurrence, some miracle, or even this mundane kind of thing. Hmm. What we've done, and when I say we, I mean lots of people from scholars to laity, we've come to the Bible believing God has the kind of power to single-handedly make something happen if God wants to. Hmm. Now, if you're from the a tradition like I'm from, the Wesleyan holiness tradition, you're going to probably say that most of the time God gives free will and is not controlling, but occasionally God would control, you know, to do the miracles like we mentioned or hardening Pharaoh's heart. Mm. But again, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that God was the only cause and there were no creaturely actors or no creaturely factors or no creaturely cooperation or contribution. The, uh, the illustration I like to use, even though some of your listeners might not like it. That's <laughs> all right. Uh, bring it out. <laughs> the illustration I like to use is to talk about Tom Brady winning his sixth Super Bowl. Oh, oh boy. Sports related. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. I'm only so, in the baseball, uh, so I don't really care about football. So you can talk about alrighty. it. All <laughs> yeah. You don't have to understand the sport to understand this illustration. So uh, when the Patriots won the, the sixth Super Bowl here last February, 
headline says, Tom Brady wins six Super Bowl. Mm. Now, that headline is true. But if you think that Tom Brady was the only Patriot playing on the field that day, you don't know football. Mm. You don't understand the game. There were lots of other contributing factors and actors. Now let's apply this to God in Scripture. God did X. God did Y. God separated the, the sea, the Red Seas, whatever. Does it ever say that God did it alone, single-handedly? Mm. And can we imagine there might be some creaturely cooperation or contribution? And if we really think, like I do, that love is a cooperative, a relational kind of a thing, then we'd have strong reasons to think that if God always loves, God would always love in relationships. So there would always be some creaturely factors or actors or contribution. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I think, I think this is a really big deal that most people haven't noticed because they've just assumed God has the kind of power to single-handedly get things done, even though I know of no biblical text that explicitly says that. Hmm. So if we were to take all of this and kind of apply it maybe to, let's say that instance where uh, God divides parts of the waters of the Red Sea, then yes. perhaps, perhaps the human involvement then is, is Moses, either would it be Moses' faith or the act of Moses raising up his arms and then God kind of working with that to bring about this miracle or? Yeah. You know, in my book, the uncontrolling love of God, I actually deal with that particular miracle and I give about three possible scenarios. Hmm. One is uh, to use what in physics we call the chaos theory, which is the idea that changes in one thing can have ripple effects across the uh, environment or across the causal system. Hmm. So a change at, you know, one particular place can have a, a wide ranging effect. It's sometimes called the butterfly effect. Mm. The idea is that a butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the continent could be the the first domino in a chain reaction that causes some hurricane on the other side. Mm. Another possibility is to talk about God operating at the quantum level here amongst the water molecules. Uh, so use quantum theory there. The one I think most plausible, though, is the idea, which is, which is uh, mentioned several times in history, is that the Red Sea has parted at other times. There are strong winds that come off the mountains there and dry out uh, for short periods of times the uh, water there. Hmm. And so then the question would be, can God communicate with Moses to get the people there at the right time to cross the water? And I have no problem seeing that happen. So, hmm. and I think also think God can predict weather forecasts better than we can. Right. So, um, yeah. So those are kinds of ways that are not naturalistic. In other words, they're not saying this happened and God had nothing to do with it, hmm. but they're also not uh, supernatural in the sense that God was the only actor involved. Hmm. I think those kind of miracles always involve God and creation. Hmm. And I love that you, I love that you're not throwing out the miracles because I know like a lot of, a lot of people who are maybe more progressive in their thinking or kind of coming at the text from a different angle will be very quick to say that like these are allegorical or um, that perhaps these stories were told in order to make a bigger point. And I like the fact that you're willing to keep the story the way that it is, but kind of explain it perhaps in a different way than just that God snapped his fingers and boom, it happened. Yeah, I, I, I believe in miracles strongly. Now, mm. I, I want to say that there are some miracles that are, that are harder for my theory to account for. Uh, you happen to mention one of them, and that's the idea that the sun stands still. Mm. Um, that one, I have a tendency to think that maybe this was the perception of the viewers and not actually the, the earth start, stopped spinning or something like that. There's been a numerous scientists who've talked about the problems that would occur had that literally happened. Hmm. But um, I can account for the vast majority of miracles in scripture and that occur today through this uh, theory. Hmm. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So that, that brings up another question in my mind that I'm thinking on kind of off the cuff here. But what do we do with because I come from, a, again, an evangelical background. I went to... Yeah, me too. Yeah, so I went to uh, Nyack College and um, Alliance Theological Seminary. Um, I took classes, uh, took a class called Divine Healing a couple of times. And uh, so miracles were like a really big part um, of my education. And they're, they're still a very big part of my, my thinking. And so 
what I'm trying to figure out in my life is how, how do these things carry forward? Like for instance, praying for the sick. So laying hands on somebody, praying for them. Uh, what does it look like for an uncontrolling God to intervene into that situation to bring about um, healing for the person that I'm praying for? Maybe who has cancer or maybe has some kind of broken bone or something like that. Yeah. So um, I deal with this pretty extensively in the middle of my more recent book, God can't. Yes. But um let me, let me give you a couple of the principles that are there and uh, then encourage your listeners to kind of get the details there. Yeah. So the first principle is that God is truly affected by our prayers. Hmm. That might sound so obvious to you and me who grew up in evangelical circles, but if you study the history of Christian theology, you'll find out that's a minority position. Hmm. Aquinas, Augustine, John Calvin, they all thought God was not affected by what we do. Hmm. The word they would use is impassable. So first of all, I think prayer makes a real difference to God. Hmm. Secondly, I think we live in an interrelated universe such that what I do has an effect not only upon God, but also upon others. And God can use what I do to uh, work in other people's lives. Hmm. I like to say my prayers might open up new opportunities and options for God to act that might not have otherwise been possible had I not prayed. Hmm. But I also think that my prayers don't somehow make it possible for God to control others in, you know, like a healing situation. Hmm. So it's not like God is waiting around saying, you know, I'd really like to heal, but you know, you haven't prayed enough times or uh, once you pray, that kind of makes me control others. No, I don't buy into that. Hmm. Um, I think it, provides new options, new possibilities, and God might be able to do things God otherwise might not have done. But um, prayer doesn't somehow make God a controlling God. Hmm. So, um, well, uh, let, me, let me say one more thing. Um, I suspect you, since we have similar backgrounds, you're kind of like me in that you have not thought that God controls everything. You're not, don't have John Calvin's God. No. You've, yeah. yeah. You've thought that, uh, you know, we have free will, Yeah. but yeah. Uh, maybe you've thought like I used to think that in order for God to do miracles, at least in some circumstances, God must step in and control single-handedly bring something about. Yes. Uh, Cause I'm asking him to do something I can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the problem with that view became evident to me growing up in the tradition, and I'm still a part of the tradition, so I still hear it. <laughs> the problem with that view is that if God can single-handedly fix things, why doesn't God just do it without our even asking? Hmm. I mean, like, if my daughter is out swimming in a lake and she can't make it to the shore, she's starting to drown, she calls out, and she doesn't yell out for help because for some reason, I don't know, something's in her mouth. Mm. Do I say, you know, she hasn't asked me, so I'm not going to swim out there and save her. Mm. No, I'm, I'm going to do the loving thing, even if she doesn't ask. Mm. Or even worse, what we've said lots of people is you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith to get healed. You're not praying hard enough. Um, and that just makes God sound, look like someone who's sitting back, who's, uh, who's, um, who's not giving us the good things in life unless we work hard enough to earn them. Mm. That just is, a, I think, a rotten view of God. So if you have a view that God is always acting to the utmost, trying to heal everyone all the time, but God simply can't heal single-handedly, then you and I have a real role to play, whether that's our prayers, whether that's eating healthy, whether that's working with doctors. Um, all these things may have a real influence on our healing. It's mm -hmm. not that God is uninvolved at all, as if it's totally a naturalistic explanation. But it's also not that it's all God. It's always a teamwork, a tandem kind of operation. Hmm. I love that because as, as you were talking, I wrote the word uh, shame on my piece of paper here in front of me. Mm. Um, because that's always the, uh, that's always like the issue I struggled with in those classes like divine healing. And even uh, we took a class called Power Encounter where we talked about um, a lot of like the the spiritual world and angels and demons and things. And there was always this feeling that like, if you, if you prayed for somebody who was sick or struggling with something and, 
nothing happened. Whereas the group that was on the other side of the room was praying and something happened over there. It was always like, and again, the professors never emphasized this, but this was always the lie I think that creeped in was that there's something wrong with me. Like I'm not praying hard enough, or maybe there's this hidden sin in my life that I haven't confessed, or maybe, you know, God's unhappy with me. And that's something that I, I, I always struggled with because I would, when I would see other things happening with other people in the classroom and even the stories they told outside of school, I'm like, do I not have the gift? You know, do I not have, yeah. there's something wrong with me? So I think it's just a beautiful way to uh, kind of extinguish those lies to think that, you know, God is uncontrolling and we have this role to play in the healing process. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's uh-huh. my view. And like I said, I, I detail that in this book, God can't, hmm. uh, including, I conclude with, by talking about 15 myths and 15 realities. And I try to summarize my position. So um, I hope that helps someone who's, who's interested in that topic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to put that book uh, in the show notes uh, again, so people can go pick it up. Uh, so Great. now I've got a few questions from our listeners. And uh, the first one um, is this. He asks, what's up with the terms high view and low view of scripture? He says, I'm not a fan. I imagine some old church guys in a room discussing how to scare people <laughs> away from thinking too much, which probably is not too far from the truth. Uh, in the past <laughs> couple of years, he says, I have evolved in my faith from a high view to a low view of the Bible. If I were to say this to my conservative friends, they would think I've lost my faith. Uh, but my question is, what would lead or convince somebody to go the other way from low to high? And so I guess, uh, I guess I'll add on to that question. I'll say, you know, I think first of all, they're, they're asking, obviously, how do you go from low to high view? What is, well, first of all, what is high view? What is low view? How do you go from low to high? But then maybe how do you go from high to low? So what does it look like to switch between these two planes of whatever it means to be high or low view of scripture? All right, first, let me answer that by giving you a partly sarcastic, partly straightforward answer. Good, give it to me. A low view of scripture is the view that someone has who disagrees with my view. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to, 90 right. plus percent of the time. I mean, <laughs> that's right. And even people like your, apparently your friend who says they have, now have a low view of scripture, I'd like to ask them to rethink their, the language they use hmm. because I suspect they now don't think that scripture can do some of the things that they thought it used to be able to do or used hmm. to think it could do. Yeah. And now I would like to say they have a more realistic, a more authentic. And so therefore, if it's more authentic, more truthful, it's really a higher view of scripture. Hmm. But again, higher and lower, it really has no objective criteria it's mostly just kind of language you throw out because you want to say to people, hey, I take the Bible seriously and uh, my opponents who disagree with me, they don't. Yeah. I think it's not charitable. I don't think it's good language to use. Um, instead of using that language, I think we ought to just try to be as honest and straightforward about what we think the text is saying and not saying. Hmm. Yeah, the, the situations I've always heard those words come up is in a situation where you're talking about the Bible and the one person says to the other person, you know, that my view of scripture is high, meaning that it's almost superior to your view of scripture and yours is low because you are not taking the Bible seriously and therefore mine is better. Yeah. Yeah. Or you get that another phrase you get to people will use in those discussions is I'm a Bible believing Christian. Yes. Yeah. As if, you know, <laughs> folks who call themselves liberals don't believe the Bible. Yes, they do. They just understand it and interpret it differently. Yeah. Or the churches that have that as part of their their vision statement is that we're a Bible believing church, which means the church on the street's not, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, very true. Yeah. So uh second question. This one this one could go in probably in a lot of different directions. We could probably do a whole series of uh episodes on this, but the person asks uh, about the book of, of Revelation, says, what do we do with the book of Revelation? Should we just throw it out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, the, I'll say the book of Revelation for me carries tons of baggage because I'm sure, again, you have a similar background as I do. But yes. when I think of Revelation, I think of my end times charts. I think yes. of all of my, my graphs about you know when the 
when the Antichrist was coming and you know, the mark of the beast and premillennialism and postmillennialism. So talk us through this. What do we do with it? Well, uh, let me begin with an anecdote. Um, okay. I went, I went to uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary, which is a pretty conservative, most people consider it evangelical seminary in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Hmm. And uh, for my exit uh, interview, actually it was kind of an exam. You had to do an oral exam with the professor. I happened to have the New Testament professor, his name is Alex Deasley. And we got into the questions of inerrancy and how you were supposed to deal with people in a local church if you were a pastor who believed the Bible was inerrant in all ways. And he, the advice he gave us at this, I'm not saying this is advice I'm giving others, but I think it's interesting. He said, I would recommend that when you go to a church, you begin a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And the reason you should do that is because people just can't take it inerrantly or literally there's so much symbolism going on there. They have to make interpretive moves. And if you can get them to understand they're making interpretive moves, then this lure of inerrancy starts to wane. They know that they can't just look at the text and think it's straightforward and they've got to actually try to make sense of it. And it's super difficult. It's actually a genius idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, I don't think practically it probably works. I might right. do it if I was a little later on in my pastoral ministry, but I don't mm. think it'd be the first thing I would do. Yeah. But yeah, it is interesting. Sometimes what I do is I like to turn to the passage in the book of Revelations where it talks about uh, uh, the thousand years, the millennial mm. passage. There's really not a lot in the book of Revelation about the thousand years, but the idea of a thousand year reign of the devil or a thousand year reign of Christ and all that millennial kind of thinking it's in the context of the author talking about four corners of the earth. Hmm. And nobody I know reads that and thinks they're actual four corners. Right. <laughs> Everybody reads that and thinks, oh, that's a metaphor for, you know, just everywhere or as far away as you can imagine. And yet they want to take the thousand years as literal. Well, hmm. why? What's the justification there? Now, I think there are reasons not to take either one of them literally. But that kind of question begins, uh, hopefully, to move people in directions that will help them to understand that while the book of Revelation is an exciting book, it's largely symbolic, and there's lots of different appropriate uh, interpretive moves one might make when reading through it. Hmm. I recently heard somebody say that when it comes to, obviously, the book of Revelation, but even larger than that, just the Bible as a whole, uh, we need to read it not so much literally as in a way that's literary in the sense uh, of yeah. understanding uh, like the genre of the particular text and reading it through that lens as opposed to just a straight literal lens. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this is an ongoing a debate amongst biblical scholars. What is the best uh, interpretive lens to use when you come to the Bible? Hmm. And, uh, you know, some folks are literary uh, uh, biblical scholars, they're asking the questions of the uh, of what kind of genre it is. Other people are asking questions of the historical context. Can you figure out what it might have meant in the past? Hmm. I think both of those are important, but aren't ever going to get you the you know full truth of the matter. Sure. Uh, but I think those are important tools and things you might use as you wrestle with the meaning of the text. Hmm. Now, would you say that Revelation... Because obviously the, one, the biggest piece of baggage that it carries is that it's, you know, this prediction of the end times and kind of what the end of the world and the apocalypse is going to be like. But do you think it's, it's more of a, of a, less of a prophecy about that and more of a um, prophetic word for the time in which it was written? I know there's like yeah. a lot of symbolism in there about the Roman Empire and um, things like that. Yeah, I think it's, it's prophetic, not in the sense of predictive prophecy, or prophetic in the sense of these are the kinds of things you need to avoid. You need to not, you know, uh, get cozy with those in political power. Hmm. There are negative consequences to that. Right. Um, so that's prophetic in that sort of sense, not in a predictive kind of prophecy sense. Hmm. And I think too that that gives us a lot of, I think, help or a lot of aid in how we can be prophetic in our own time if we read the Book of Revelation. Yep, I think so yeah. too. You know what? Um, Earlier, before we got on the air, I was talking about this um, old book that I edited. Yeah. And I mentioned that there were some essays on there, particular books. 
one of the books is on the book of Revelation. How about if I send you that particular chapter and you could put a link up on for your listeners and they could uh, read about this biblical scholar talking about 10 things you need to know about the book of Revelation. That would be perfect. That would be awesome. I will do that. And I'll share it in the group specifically too. So one last question. Um, This one, this is a big one. Uh, This one has to do with uh, the resurrection. And uh, the person asks, um, as of now, it's scientifically impossible to bring someone back to life after being dead for three days. Uh, He says the cells in the body have already started to decay. Uh, The brain and organs would be unusable as the composition has already begun to change with no chance to be reused in another body, much less revived in the same one. Uh, The cells are completely dead at that point. So given uh, this and your view of a God that can't control without creaturely cooperation, um, in your view, how is the biblical account of the resurrection even possible? All right, this is going to take a, a long answer. So oh fast boy. Seatbelt, all right? Okay, here we go. <laughs> first of all, let me object to the uh, first statement, which says okay. it's scientifically impossible to bring someone back to life after being dead for three days. Hmm. If this is true, then of course the, res- the uh, resurrection of Lazarus is not correct because he was apparently dead for four days. Hmm. But let's set that aside just for a moment. Okay. And let's ask the question, why would it be? be scientifically impossible to bring someone back from the dead who's been dead three days. Hmm. I don't think that's scientifically impossible, especially if that person's body is in a particular condition. Uh, You know, people who are frozen, for instance, and who die drowning in a frozen lake can be dead for long periods of time. I'm not, Hmm. no, I'm not sure what the longest is, but um, uh, another thing to think about here is that if we try to take the scriptures literally Jesus probably was in the grave 36 to 40 hours, not 72 hours. So if they really had to make sure he was dead before sundown on Friday, and he's out of the tomb before the women show up Sunday morning, you're not talking 72 hours. You're talking 36 to 40, probably. That's Hmm. just something to think about. It doesn't prove my point at all, but just... (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the next interesting question to ask what do we think was actually resurrected? Hmm. This is a super puzzling question because the accounts we have in scripture are really wild. For instance, this Jesus walks with a couple guys and talks with them for miles and they don't recognize him until he breaks bread. Hmm. He's in a room where the doors are locked and suddenly he appears. He stands next to the grave and people uh, mistake him for being a gardener. Uh, this Jesus doesn't seem to have an easily recognizable body, and it seems to be able to go through walls or somehow got in that room. I don't know. Hmm. Um, so what are we really talking about when we talk about resurrection? That brings up the question of what we think our resurrections might be like. And here the biblical record has two major options. One is that we're resurrected as something like souls or minds, And in that case, we wouldn't have to worry about the cells of our body making it back. The other one is that we'll be what the Apostle Paul calls having spiritual bodies. So what connection does cells have with spiritual bodies? I'm not really sure. (laughs) But uh, uh, what I'm doing here is beginning to ask the question, do we have, to what extent do we think we know what the resurrection body of Jesus is like? Now, to get a more specific answer, (laughs) (laughs) what if you take my theory seriously that God cannot control and the resurrection of Jesus had to be through uncontrolling power? What responsiveness would Jesus have? What abilities, what capabilities would Jesus have as one who is dead in the grave? Most Christians have thought that we have something like a mind or soul, whether or not we're mind-body dualists or there's a bunch of other different options. But insofar as our mind or soul continues to exist beyond the death of our body, and insofar as Jesus had one of those, which I have no problem thinking that, Hmm. surely Jesus's mind or soul would want to be cooperating with God, resurrecting intentions. So you got lots of cooperation going on there. Then the next question, which gets to your, your listeners thing, what about the cells in the body? Are they able to respond? 
And I think what makes the Jesus case a little bit harder for me in my proposal is that not only is he dead, but also apparently has a sword stuck in him. So he's got a major injury here as well. Um, so it'd be one thing if he drowns in a lake and he's dead for three days of cold water and he's revived. It's another thing to think that he doesn't have a lot of blood in that body because, you know, he had blood and water coming out here. Mm -hmm. I'm getting very specific, you know, sure, <laughs> again. <sure. laughs> so um, that creates an obstacle for my view. I have to be honest about that. Hmm. However, there's another option here that I've been thinking about and we're getting to wild speculation now. So let me keep rolling. Yeah, yeah. Um, what would we talk a lot these days about having a about how it is that people who live a good life tend to live longer you know there's all kinds of studies that say that seventh day adventists because they're vegetarians live a lot longer than the rest of us do and we also know that sin in various ways is going to hurt our bodies what if you've got a guy who never sinned. That guy would have an, an incredibly close relationship between mind and body, a body able to respond in powerful ways to the mind, ways beyond what you and I could respond because you and I have sinned. Hmm. Um, might that be part of the clue to understanding how Jesus, who's cooperating as a soul or mind, could also have incredible influence over bodily members that even might be damaged. Hmm. Now, again, this is wild speculation, <laughs> but hmm. this is how I think about these things as I work through this particular proposal. Hmm. One final thing, and then I'll let you throw some stuff back at me. Yeah, yeah. If God can resurrect Jesus single-handedly, doesn't need any help from Jesus or anyone else, why do the biblical texts have strange stories about other things going on? For instance, Matthew says that an angel rolls away the stone. If God can resurrect Jesus, why does God need to call upon a, an angel to roll away the stone? Hmm. Weird thing going on there. Hmm. Um, anyway, I've written an, a scholarly article on this just recently, so I've been thinking a lot about it. But those mm. are some of my ideas. <laughs> so when back to the point you said about um, people who live a certain way, living living longer, and Jesus' yeah. perfection and uh, sinless life maybe empowering him um, to, would you say, live a longer life, a more, I'm, not, I'm struggling with the wording, but uh, maybe a more... Well, like, uh, I want to say the mind-body relationship is much more in tune. Mm. Um, so, you know, just like people, we know people today who uh, really take care of their bodies. They quote, listen to their bodies mm. and they're able to be healthier people because of this. And one of the things they do to be healthy is to avoid stuff that hurts their body. Mm. Well, let's say Jesus knows how to do that perfectly. Mm. He's sinless. That creates quite an advantage for Jesus. Hmm. And so then that would be the cooperative piece in working with God and working with the miracle. That would be one of them. Yeah. That would be one that of the cooperative. Be, hmm. Yeah. That would be how not only were the cells directly influenced by God in the resurrection, but also Jesus's mind, which also wants to cooperate with God would be an additional influence upon the cells in this close mind body relationship. Hmm. The mind and the soul that's still alive in a sense beyond the grave. Right, which is a right. very common view amongst most Christians. Hmm. Very cool. I never thought of any of that. So this is actually, <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and listen to this a few times. <laughs> uh, this is super helpful, but hey, we're just about out of time. Um, I know you are struggling with a cold and I am struggling with my allergies. So uh, I'm going to let you go. Thank you for making the time to come back on. Uh, this was really great. Hey, it was my honor, Glenn. I, I really, really enjoy talking with you and let me uh, mention to your listeners that if they'd like to ask me questions directly, you can just send me an email. Uh, you could put that in the show notes if you want. Yeah. And uh, I'd be happy to try to respond. I don't definitely don't have all the answers, but I've been thinking about these things pretty seriously and I'd love to explore some answers together with the uh, folks. Oh, that would be perfect. And maybe uh, if you don't mind, I might invite you into that group sometime. Maybe they can just pepper you with hey, some questions. Excellent idea. I like awesome. that. Awesome. Well, we will do that. Hey, thank you so much. And I uh, hope you have a great night. I hope you feel better. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot, Glenn. Thank you, Thomas. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.
Go and hit a run, number check. Wish I had no other same most beat, number checks. Wishing for my people. Uh. Wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name our own picture, we bring our own sand. Wherever we live is so bland. So much with high on demand. Tiptoe around through and high lows. Feel like James Brown, love, we go ahead and dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lock. Champion. Go ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wish I had red bottles on my feet. Everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride. It is beat neat. Ever wanna follow my speed? Let's close those more keys. Hey. Carry a lot of rows on freeze. Hey. Wishing I could fly to the keys. Hey. That will be more free. Hey. Something in my mind hit the doubt. Put on my fresh fit. Uh. Turn Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got a hands up, ready for box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign, wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign, wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love.